Thank you for having me, got, having me up here, everyone. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been up here and brought the word at Thrive. It's, I was thinking about it. It's been like over a year and a half or so. Um, so it's been a long time, but I'm so grateful to be up here and to be sharing the word of God with you guys. Um, are we loving this, this series in Romans? I mean, it has been such an amazing and rich, rich series the past three or four months. Um, and I would just encourage you guys, like, right now, continue to be in the book of Romans. Like, don't just let this be your time in the book of Romans, but go home and make sure that the speaker was, like, right about what he was saying. Um, continue to just spend time in this book because there's so much just richness and fullness in it. Um, if you've never read the book of Romans all the way through in one sitting, I would really encourage you guys to do that because there's just so much that is opened up. Um, when you just throw time away and just say, all right, I'm going to read the entire book of Romans word by word. And if I don't know a word, I'm going to look at them in the dictionary and I'm just going to learn because um, there's just so much beauty in that. So I would encourage you guys to do that. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me up here, everyone. Um, let's just pray one more time before we dive into this. Uh, Lord, uh, Get me out of the way. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are worthy of praise. Um, and I ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds to the wonder of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36 today. Um, we're going to be looking at the doxology. So first, I just want to, like, where are we in the book of Romans? And if you read the book of Romans all the way through, or if you start in chapter 11 and you get to this last part of chapter 11, you're like, why is this here? This was kind of like an awkward transition. I thought we were talking about Israel and all these big things and the kind of divine sovereign plan of God from, um, from the Jews to the Gentiles. And then he just bursts into praise. So, so why are we where we are in the book of Romans? And why does Paul burst into praise at this moment? So, Without spending a whole lot of time going through the entire book, I just want to hit some, some brief points about what each chapter kind of contains and what Paul's argument is throughout. So in chapter 1, we remember that the, the, that the key theme verse, <laughs> I didn't see that, is um, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Um, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if we remember those two verses, that's going to help us a lot in reading the entire book through, because a lot of those kind of key phrases are going to keep popping up, and it's all going to come back to that, that the righteous shall live by faith, and that the gospel is in Jesus alone. So we remember in chapter 1 that God's wrath is against everything that is ungodly and, and, and unholy. And that's, that's kind of a bold thing to say right, right off the bat, but that's where Paul starts, and that is a beautiful thing. And that alone is something that we should praise God for, the God's wrath. That is something that we should not take lightly and not just kind of glance over and try to run to chapter 2 right away. Um, I, why is God's wrath something that is worth praising God for? Because that, that's, that's a hard question, and that, and that hits our hearts, especially in today's age where we just hate anything that, is, that has an attitude of hate towards it. But that is not God's heart in his wrath. God is wrathful, but he has a just wrath. We worship a God who is wrathful towards anything that is unholy and that is sinful. Therefore, he cannot be in the presence of sin, but he wants us. And even though our hearts have sin inside them, 
he, he wanted us so bad that he took that sin in us and put it on Jesus and made him pay the cost for our sin so that he could have us. And that is God being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's wrath is something that's praiseworthy in and of itself. And that's something that can't be forgotten as we continue to go through this book. So chapter 1, God is, God's wrath is towards anything that is sinful. And that is including us if we don't have our faith in Jesus. Chapter 2, we learn that God's judgment is just, that it's right, and that it's true, that there's a reason for his judgment. Um, and in chapter 3, we learn that all of us have that sin inside of us. Both Jew and Greek are fallen. And sin has, 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 sin's curse is upon us. And apart from God, we, are, we lay dead in our sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we've seen in chapter 4 that since the beginning of time, since, even since Abraham, righteousness by faith has been extended to mankind, both Jew and Gentile. And that, for us, is now in Jesus, in his Son. And we, read, we, we know from chapter 5 um, that we have been justified um, by faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have now have, have a... Have a a slate wiped clean, that our relationship with God is as if we had never sinned before because of Jesus' death on the cross for our sin. He who knew no sin became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the, the great reversal, it's the scandal of grace, and it's the entire argument that this book is built upon. That Jesus paid for our sin and that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. We learn in chapter 6 that we are dead to sin, we're alive to God, but yet in chapter 7 there's still this tension in our hearts that we, we want to live to God and I, I, I do not do the things that I want to do, but I do the things that I don't want to do. That there's this tension in our hearts and, and we have to find that freedom. And in chapter 8 we know that the Spirit has set us free in Christ Jesus, that there is no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and darkness. So everything has been done for us in Jesus, and that alone is praiseworthy in and of itself. And sometimes I read the book of Romans, and I'm like, why doesn't he just burst into doxology and praise right then, right? Can anyone agree? Like, right after chapter 8, you're just like, okay, you know, that's it. That's all that's, all that's needed. <laughs> but he keeps writing, and there's 9, and there's 10, and 11. And those are so um, crucial to how we understand the entire book because 1 through 8 is all about these blessings that are to the Gentiles now. And he says, well, what about the Jews? Because I thought the Jews were God's chosen people. For to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, and the patriarchs, and eventually the Messiah. So everything belongs to the Jews, I thought. So why is this given to the Gentiles now? Why is there this righteousness by faith that the Gentiles have attained but that the Israelites have not? And that's exactly why. Because the Israelites, it says in chapter 10, pursued righteousness, or pursued righteousness as if it were based on works. But all along, it was by faith. And we read that, uh, we see that from Abraham um, and all throughout. And we know, in, and we read in chapter 11 uh, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, that they cannot be changed, that though Israel has fallen, they have not fallen away permanently, that they will eventually be restored and grafted back into the olive tree, and that the whole family of God will come together in God's 
holistic salvific plan for all of mankind. So that's a, just, just a really brief overview from 1 to 11. I, you, know, you can get into a whole lot of good stuff, and that's what we've been doing the past three or four months. It's been amazing. Um, but now we're in chapters, chap, or verses 33 to 36 of 11. So 1 through 11 brings us to where we are now. Let's read it quickly. If you have your Bible, you can open it up now. We're going to be flipping back and forth between a lot of scriptures. I'd really encourage you to bring a physical Bible so that you can be tracking with whoever's speaking and and following along. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So before we kind of dive into what this doxology actually says about who God is, I think it's really important that we actually just zoom out for a second and look at where this doxology is. So Paul, you know, has spent 1 through 11 talking about all of this amazing truth and doctrine and all of this, you know, amazing rhetoric and argument, and it's just beautiful and now we get to this doxology. And if you don't know, there's four more chapters to come. And these next four chapters, I'll give you a preview, are all about how we live. So what does that mean? Why do we go from all of this stuff that seems very abstract and far off and kind of dry at times to these short four verses and then four more chapters about how we should live? And for those of you who like big words, I'll spoil it now. It goes theology to doxology to orthopraxy. That is, how we, what we know about God to how we praise God to how we live out who God is. So every belief that we have, everything that we know from 1 through 11 that is set in stone should directly correlate, should directly uh, tie into, if it is a true belief, if you really believe it in your heart, it should act out and it should bear fruition in how you live. All of that is connected, yet in these four verses in the middle is praise to God. And that praise to God, if you, if you know the first 11 chapters really well, it's all throughout the 11 chapters. Paul is going, blessed be God forever. You know, he is praising God in his theology, which is what theology should do. It should lead us to doxology. And that's why he has these four verses, and it also inhabits the next four chapters. For chapter 12, verse 2 says that this is your spiritual act of worship. What does it say? This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So as we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, that in itself is worship. So we know that we see worship in the first 11 chapters. We see worship tonight in what we're looking at. And we see worship and praise in the last four chapters, that that we have a spiritual act of worship in how we live out our lives. So that is truth and doctrine tie exactly to living and example setting, yet doxology and praise inhabits it all. So we know from, from, from zooming out and looking at where this doxology stands, that the purpose of this passage is that believers are to worship God and give him glory for all that he's done and all that he will do. And what do I mean when I say all that he will do? 
because we've, we've talked a lot, you know, the last three or four months about what he has done, one through 11. Like, there are some amazing, amazing truths in there. But what, well, what, is, what is to come? Why, why, why do I include that in that clause? Well, I could, I could pull up a lot of examples of promises that are still to come, that God has still promised us, but I just want to mention two briefly. Um, in chapter 11, verse 12, uh, we are promised or God promises the full inclusion of Israel. He says that Israel will come back to him. Uh, Let me read chapter 11, verse 12. It says, Now if their trespass, that means Israel's trespass, means riches for the world or for the Gentiles, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So that means there is going to be a rich fulfillment when Israel is grafted back into that olive tree. And that is a promise that is still to come, that we can cling to and hold to, and we can praise God in the now, even though it hasn't come yet. One more promise that hasn't come that we can still cling to and still praise God for, we find in chapter 8, verse 23. Let me back up to verse 22 for context. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there is a promise that we are clinging to, that we are hoping for, that we can praise God now, even though it hasn't come. Why can we praise God now for something that hasn't come? Because of what he's already done for us. Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit as a seal of our salvation. And that alone is praiseworthy. But we also praise Him for what is to come. It is all inhabited by praise. That's what I want to convince you of tonight. That's what I hope your hearts are drawn towards as we dive into this doxology. So let's look at what Paul praises. I want to look at three things. I want to look at why we are to worship God and give Him glory for all that He's done and all He will do. I want to look at how and I want to look at what now. What can we take away from this? So first, why? Why do we do this? Why do we worship God? Why does Paul worship God in this passage? And this first point is going to be really quick. It's because of everything that he said before. All of 1 through 11 sets us up and encourages us and sets our hearts in an attitude of praise. That's why we praise God, because of all that he has done for us and all that he's promised for us. That first point was a little repetitive. But the second point is something new. How? How do we praise God? How do we worship God? We worship God by proclaiming truth with awe that propels us forward. We see this directly in this passage. Paul states nothing untruthful. Nothing about God in this passage is wrong, is false, is something that we can't say God is not. God is everything in this passage. Therefore, worship is proclaiming and saying things with truth about who God is. How do we know who God is? From his word. We'll get into it, but Paul quotes from um, Isaiah 40 and Job 41. So he appeals to the scriptures for who God is, as evidence for who God is in his character and in his nature. And that's what we should be doing today as well. That's what worshiping God is. So let's just look through um, this passage. And we'll read verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So there is is a depth, there is a foundation, there is an unsearchable um, hole in in, in these next three things. The riches, 
the knowledge and the wisdom of God. These things are rich beyond our comprehension. And even though I might say a few decent words tonight, there is so much more that can be said about all of this, about who God is. And I would encourage you, dive into it. There's this thing in the back of our Bibles called a concordance. If you find like a word that you don't know, you look it up in there and it'll give you every verse with that word in it. So if I'm like, what, what are the riches of God? Where, where else in the Bible does it talk about the riches of God? And you can look up R in the back of your concordance and pull up all the other verses. And that will help give you understanding in these things of God. So I'm going to do a little bit of that tonight. Um, the riches. What are the depths of God's riches for us? Well, the first place I want to bring this up is actually in the book of Romans itself, in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Read it with me. It says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So we see in this passage that God is so rich in his kindness and forbearance and patience. That is something that we so often forget and that we so often misinterpret. That, that, that's what Paul says. He says, God's kindness is not meant so that you can just live another day and just go on another day and just do that sin again. Do that sin again. That's not what his kindness is for. That's not what his patience is for. That's not what his forbearance is for. His forbearance, his kindness, and his patience is for you to repent, to turn 180 degrees around and go the other way. And we so often forget that. He is rich, though in his kindness, forbearance, and patience towards us. Praise God. We also read that God is rich in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our own trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Before I dive into that verse, I just want to say, in this doxology, Jesus is everywhere. You won't, you won't read Jesus in any one of the individual words, but he inhabits it all. All praise is to him. It's to God the Father, but it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus is in this doxology. Just dig for it. So Ephesians chapter 1 says that all of the riches have been lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. And, and that whole verse, when I read it last week, it can sound kind of abstract. And we say, oh, the riches of God, like, that's kind of just like this far-off thing that I can't really think about. You know, God has a lot of money, maybe, or he made all the earth, and so everything's his, right? But he is rich in us, how? In how he has shown us Jesus. All of the riches of God were lavished upon us in Jesus alone. For in him we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. If you have placed your faith in Jesus tonight, you have those spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. And those are God's riches lavished upon you. And nothing less. That is just, those two things are just parts of God's riches for us. Next, the wisdom. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. I just want to mention wisdom and knowledge can, kind sound, can sound kind of synonymous, and they kind of sound like the same word, but there's a distinction. Knowledge is kind of the rationale, the intellect, the just dry knowledge. Sometimes what we can think is 1 through 11 is just knowledge. It's all knowledge. 
but wisdom is the acting out of that knowledge. So we see God's wisdom in how he acted out towards us and how he saved us and drew us to himself. Um, So we read about the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1. I'll just read it here quickly for you. It says, So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Let me pause there. The Jews back in that day were always looking for some sort of power. They wanted power. They wanted a miracle. They wanted to see um, the fire fall down from heaven. They wanted to see God act out in some crazy miracle. And the Greeks in that day wanted wisdom. All, they thought they, were, um, they would affirm people by their wisdom, by their intellect, by their arguments. So Greeks sought after wisdom, Jews after power. So when we preach that Christ was crucified... The Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's foolish. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, there it is again, both Jews and Gentiles, God wills for all men to be saved. For both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what is just a sliver of the depths of the wisdom of God? It's Jesus. It's all Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of God for those who are called to salvation, for those who place their faith in him. He is the wisdom of God and how he reached out to us and how he took away our sin and how he has called us unto himself. Only by his son do we possess that. That is rich and that is the wisdom of God. And what is the knowledge of God? The knowledge of God could be I could appeal to a lot of different things to just submit to you guys as the knowledge of God. Um, but as, as, as I read through the Bible, what stands out to me most as a witness to the knowledge of God is creation. Amen. Just reading about how he created the world, how he created the earth by his breath, how he knows every star, how he knows every ant, how he knows every soul, every human being, every wild beast that isn't even seen by a man He knows it all, and he created it all. And I just wanted to read a few verses from Job 38. Um, just, Just listen to this and think about it in the context of God's knowledge. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. God is so knowledge-filled. There is such a depth to his knowledge that I can just not even close to comprehend. And that is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our praise. Moving on uh, to the next phrase, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Um, when I, I think Paul's, throughout this doxology, kind of relates back to different sections within the book of Romans. He's praising God for a reason. They're not just random adjectives that he came up with to describe God. Uh, but there's a reason that he states each phrase. And I believe that the unsearchable judgments are seen in chapter 2, verses 3 to 10. Um, it's a little bit longer, but just, just think about the judgments of God, how just he is, and how worthy of our praise he is for this. 
He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The judgment of God is just and it is right, for he is a holy God and a wrathful God, wanting to punish all sin. But he has offered us an out. He has offered us salvation. He has offered us a slate wiped clean and a, uh, a, a garment that is pure white. Our sins were scarlet red, but he has washed us white as snow by the work of his son on the cross. The judgment of God is just, yet in it, it's just unsearchable. We just can't know it, and it's, it, it's, it's all to God. He's worthy of our praise because of his judgment. How are his ways past finding out? How inscrutable are his ways? This kind of just attests to the mystery of God and how grand God is in, in, in orchestrating and in um, putting together every piece that fits together into what we know as history. Um, I just wanted to read verses 28 to 32 of chapter 11 uh, just, to give you, just to give us a taste of God's way and path for all of humanity. Um, he says, As regards the gospel, they, that is the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That is, everything that God has promised to the Jews, everything that God promised to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac, everything is irrevocable. It cannot be changed. He will fulfill those promises and he will deliver those because he does not back down on his promises or his covenants. They're, they're irrevocable. They cannot be changed. For just, as you, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, that is, Israelites' disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God wills for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of him. He is patient in his promises, but he is not slow to fulfill them. He will bring everyone to full fruition, and he wants to have mercy on all. For just as the, I, I tried to kind of lay this out earlier, and it didn't quite make sense, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Just as the Gentiles were once disobedient, and the Jews were obedient, the Jews have fallen to disobedience and the Gentiles been, have been lifted up to obedience and God will once again bring the, Gen, or the, the Israelites who are now in disobedience to obedience 
so that the whole family of God will come together. For the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God will fulfill this, and this is a promise that we can cling to, and that he is worthy of our praise for. This is something I just, I just, you know, I can talk about it, but sometimes I just don't understand it. This is a path of God. This is the way of God. This is the way that he has done things that is beyond searching out that we cannot understand. And at this point, I just want to mention, it's okay to say that there are things that we don't know about God. There are mysteries of God that we will not know on this earthly life. And that's okay. Paul says it. How inscrutable are his ways. We just, I, I can't figure them out. They're beyond me sometimes. Going on, he says, For who has known the minds of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In that first verse, he's uh, quoting from Isaiah 40, and in the next, he's quoting from Job 41. Uh, this, this passage in Job is kind of just like a, a wonder passage of Isaiah. Um, it, it's also kind of attests to the knowledge of God. I, I think in these verses 34 and 35, where he quotes from the Old Testament, he's kind of proving what he just stated. He's saying, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I didn't say those for nothing. I didn't just come up with those in my head. Here's where I find there's a source. This is in the word of God. And he quotes from Isaiah. Let me read a section quickly. He says, who has measured the waters? This is God speaking. This is the Lord speaking. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught God the path of justice and who taught him knowledge and who showed him understanding? Have you not known and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So we have not been a God we have not been people who have told God what to do. He, for everything, has come from him. Everything has come through him, and everything will go back unto him. For all things are his, and to him be the glory forever. God is a great, majestic, and holy God, worthy of our praise. I say that. I want to say that again with, with more gust and unction, but who has known the minds of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We have given God nothing that he should say, oh man, so-and-so really did a great deed for me. I really do owe them something. We have done nothing that amounts to God's sight to a sliver, but he has done everything for us in Jesus. And for that, he is worthy of our praise once again. For who has been his counselor? I like that phrase, and I was thinking about it. And, the, you know, the rhetorical answer to these two verses is no one, right? No one. But so often, we try to fit ourselves into being that counselor. We try to counsel God in prayer. Lord, I know that you, I've, no, I've been noticed that you're, or I have noticed that you're doing this and doing that. But, you know, I really do think that you should twist this around this way. Or that you should really get this person to do that. Or you should put me in this place of success. But that is not our place. We are not the counselor of God, but he is our mighty counselor and our wonderful savior. 
that, that, that is a reversal that we just so subtly and sometimes unknowingly make, but it is not our place. And I'm going to get to the what now soon, but who has been his counselor? That is no one. He is our counselor. This should draw us to humility. This should draw us to our knees in humility, saying, God, you are my counselor, and I am not yours, and I am not my own. For from you and through you and to you are all things. Is not from us, but unto him. Wrapping up with verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Picture a child that is born from a father and a mother. And this child is born into the earth and it sits in the dust. And it is from, literally from, the father and the mother that this child is born, created, sustains life. It is through the father and the mother, literally, knowing each other, that this baby comes, that comes into existence. And this is where the analogy breaks down because all analogies do, but picture that that father is Father God and that we are his children. For it is back unto him that that life, that child's life, will be given back to him. Every relationship that is built, every job that is earned, every conversation that is had, it all goes back unto the Father. For it is unto him that are all things. It's not for our edification or for our growing, but we should be giving everything that we have back unto the Lord in full surrender. For it is from him and through him and to him that all things are. To him be the glory. He deserves all of it. He deserves it all. So, so what? So, so what does this all mean? Sometimes, if, if, I, if I just left off right here, I feel like this could just be another portion of 1 through 11. You know, 1 through 11 has been really rich. I don't mean to dumb that down at all. But it's really easy for chapters 1 through 11 of Romans to just be this kind of dry head knowledge with lots of Cation words and lots of kind of I don't know, things that just fly right past us, you know? But what do we do with this praise? Paul has said every single word for a reason, so that means every single word that he said should have an implication for our lives. So what now? I feel that the Lord has given me three what nows for us tonight. Number one is grateful. We should be grateful. All of these applications are, have a presupposition that we have correctly and rightly understood and grasped in our hearts the truths of this doxology. It's not for no reason that Paul has written this. He has written this very intentionally. And if we really understand it in our hearts, these will flow from it. We are grateful because of all that God has done for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Christ Jesus our Lord is eternal life. That makes us grateful, and that leads, us, that leads me to, to the second point, is that we are humbled. We are humbled when we realize that we are not God's counselor, that we are not our own counselor, but that he is our counselor, and that he has done everything for us. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That should draw us 
to a place on our knees in humility, just saying, God, it's not on my own behalf that I've done anything, but my life is wholly yours. It should draw us to humility. And thirdly, this should draw us to surrender. If we really humble our hearts before the Lord, then we should have open hands, saying, God, I'm not going to try to control my life anymore. My life is not my own. I'm not living for my sake or for my own edification or for my own glory, but it's for yours and yours alone. There's just an open-handed surrender when we truly grasp the worthiness of God. And if you've never, if you've been a Christian for a long time, there's just these stages that kind of happen in life where you surrender and you give your life back to the Lord. And I would encourage you guys to just remember how worthy God is. And it's not my job to stir you guys up and to surrender, to stir anyone to say, to, to, to raise their hand and say, I, I, I want to believe in Jesus tonight because the Holy Spirit will do that work in you but be open and willing to the work of the Spirit to surrender your life to Him. Once again, if you've already been a believer and for the first time, if you don't know Christ tonight, I would plead you, I would more than plead you, I would urge you to put your faith in Jesus for all the fleeting riches and the vain things of this world will never fulfill you. They will never give you true joy, but Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through him. Hold your life empty unto the Father, and he alone will fill you. He's worthy of our praise, you guys. I hope that I've stirred you guys to a place of just feeling that God is worthy. Um, I hope that the Spirit is working in your hearts right now. And I just want to do one last thing. Um, If you could all stand to your feet, we're going to sing the doxology. Um, If you don't know this song, it's, I actually don't know where it came from, I'm not going to lie to you, but um, it's rooted in this passage, and I'm sure it came to be in the church at some point. Um, And if you know the song, just close your eyes and and praise God from the bottom of your heart. And if you don't, uh, the words are on the screen. Praise God from whom All praise be to the Father tonight.